This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will go over the topic of pediatric both bone forearm fracture from the pediatric section on orthobullets.com. Let's start this episode with a quick summary. Both bone forearm fractures are one of the most common pediatric fractures, estimated around 40% of all pediatric fractures. Diagnosis is made with plain radiographs of the forearm. Treatment is closed reduction and casting for the majority of fractures. Surgical intervention is indicated for significantly displaced or angulated fractures in patients approaching skeletal maturity. Now, let's get into the episode. Starting with epidemiology, as far as incidence of pediatric both bone forearm fractures, this is one of the most common pediatric fractures and in fact is estimated around 40% of all pediatric fractures. As far as demographics, these injuries are more common in males than in females. As far as anatomic location, 14% are found in the distal physis, 60% are in the distal metaphysis, 20% are mid-shaft, and 4% are in the proximal third. Moving on to pathophysiology, as far as mechanism of injury, these injuries usually occur from a fall from a height, a sporting event, or playground equipment injury. The peak incidence is during peak bone turnover, which leads to a mismatch in bone remodeling. Associated conditions with pediatric both bone forearm fractures include a floating elbow and nerve injury. As far as floating elbow, 15% of patients present with an ipsilateral supracondylar fracture, otherwise known as a floating elbow. As far as nerve injury, 1% of these patients have a neurologic injury, most commonly to the median nerve. Now, let's go over some relevant anatomy. Specifically, we'll go over osteology, muscles, and soft tissues. Starting with osteology, there's physiologic apex lateral bowing of the radius and physiologic apex posterior bowing of the ulna. As far as muscles, the biceps and supinator flex and supinate the proximal fragment, the pronator teres and pronator quadratus pronate the distal fragment, and the brachioradialis dorsiflexes and radially deviates the distal fragment. As far as soft tissues, the periosteum is often intact on the concave side of the fracture. The interosseous membrane is taut in neutral to slight supination. Moving on to the classification of pediatric both bone forearm fractures, these injuries are classified by fracture type as well as fracture location and pattern. With respect to fracture type, pediatric both bone forearm fractures can be incomplete or complete. Incomplete fractures include green stick fractures, torus fractures, and plastic deformation. In terms of fracture location and pattern, these injuries, as we mentioned, can be proximal third, middle third, or distal third, and there can be an apex volar or apex dorsal pattern. Moving on to presentation, patients with pediatric both bone forearm fractures will have symptoms of forearm pain and refusal to use the arm. On physical exam, inspection may reveal swelling, deformity, and ecchymosis. With respect to open fracture, keep in mind that these injuries can have subtle poke holes and can often be missed if not evaluated by an orthopedic surgeon. These patients will obviously have tenderness to palpation, and a complete examination should be done of the injured extremity for ipsilateral injury. As far as neurovascular assessment, be sure to assess for neurovascular injury, and you should always rule out compartment syndrome. Moving on to imaging, recommended views on radiographs include an AP and lateral forearm x-ray, and be sure to obtain orthogonal x-rays of the elbow and wrist for ipsilateral injury. Findings can include fracture of both the radius and ulna, fracture of a single bone with plastic deformation of the other bone, no fracture with atypical bowing patterns suggestive of plastic deformation, And finally, you may see rotational malalignment. Remember that the bicipital tuberosity and radial styloid should be 180 degrees apart on the AP view. The ulnar styloid and coronoid are 180 degrees apart on the lateral view. The diameter of the proximal and distal fragments should match, 
and the thickness of the cortices should match on proximal and distal fragments. Now let's talk about the treatment of pediatric both bone forearm fractures. We'll start with the table of acceptable reduction or tolerances based on age. So in the 0 to 10 year cohort, you can tolerate less than 15 degrees of angulation, less than 45 degrees of malrotation, and as far as bayonet apposition, you can accept it if it's less than one centimeter short. In the cohort of patients greater than or equal to 10 years of age, acceptable angulation is less than 10 degrees, acceptable malrotation is less than 30 degrees, and no bayonet apposition can be accepted. Finally, in patients approaching skeletal maturity, that is less than two years of growth remaining, no degree of angulation can be accepted, no degree of malrotation can be accepted, and finally, no bayonet apposition can be accepted. Treatment of pediatric both bone forearm fractures can be non-operative or operative. Non-operative management includes closed reduction and immobilization. As far as indications, most pediatric forearm fractures can be treated without surgery when an adequate reduction is maintained. Other indications include green stick injuries, plastic deformation if over 20 degrees, and remember that bayonet apposition is okay if the patient is less than 10 years and growth remains. As far as non-operative modalities, closed reduction should be done with analgesia and casting or splinting. Options for analgesia vary from local block, regional block, conscious sedation, and general anesthesia. Operative options include percutaneous versus open reduction and intramedullary nailing, and open reduction and internal fixation. As far as indications for percutaneous versus open reduction and intramedullary nailing, unacceptable alignment following closed reduction is an angulation of greater than 15 degrees and greater than 45 degrees of rotation in children less than 10 years old. Other unacceptable alignments include angulation greater than 10 degrees and rotation of greater than 30 degrees in children greater than 10 years old. Once again, bayonet apposition in children older than 10 years old is unacceptable. Other indications for percutaneous versus open reduction and intramedullary nailing include both bone forearm fractures in children greater than 13 years old. Relative indications for percutaneous versus open reduction and intramedullary nailing include highly displaced fractures. Moving on to open reduction and internal fixation, this can also be indicated for unacceptable alignment following closed reduction. Again, unacceptable alignment means angulation greater than 15 degrees and rotation greater than 45 degrees in children less than 10 years old, angulation greater than 10 degrees and rotation greater than 30 degrees in children greater than 10 years old, and again, bayonet apposition in children older than 10 years old is unacceptable and therefore open reduction and internal fixation can be indicated. Other indications include open fractures, refractures, and both bone forearm fractures in children greater than 13 years old, specifically those nearing skeletal maturity. Relative indications for ORIF include highly displaced fractures as well as highly comminuted or segmental fractures. Now let's talk about the techniques of closed reduction, percutaneous versus open intramedullary nailing, and open reduction and internal fixation in a bit more detail. So starting with closed reduction in the setting of plastic deformation, bone work should include steady three-point bending to counteract the bending deformity. As far as complications, a fracture may occur with an abrupt force rather than a slow gradual increase in force. Moving on to green stick fractures, as far as bone work, reduction is achieved through a combination of traction, direct pressure with a thumb, rotation, and three-point bending. Keep in mind that apex volar fractures are treated with pronation and apex dorsal fractures are treated with supination. In terms of instrumentation, reduction can be aided with finger traps and counterweights. Casting maintains reduction through three-point molding and an interosseous mold. Remember that there is no increase in loss of reduction with short-arm versus long-arm casting. However, there is an increase in loss of reduction with an increased cast index of greater than 
Complications include compartment syndrome with excessive swelling and tight circumferential casting. However, you can bivalve the cast to mitigate this risk. In terms of other complications, keep in mind that remanipulation after close reduction has been associated with increased initial fracture displacement. Moving on to percutaneous versus open intramedullary nailing, as far as the approach, the ulnar nail is inserted through the tip of the olecranon or through the ancaneus to avoid damage to the ulnar nerve. The radial nail is inserted just proximal to the radial styloid or in the dorsal aspect of the distal radius proximal to the physis. As far as the bone work, be sure to reduce the bone prior to the passage of the nails. Start with whichever bone is easiest to reduce. Open the fracture if there is unsuccessful passage with three attempts. As far as instrumentation, rod removal is often required three to four months after surgery. In terms of complications, multiple unsuccessful attempts at passage of the nail increases the risk of compartment syndrome. As far as outcomes, there's shorter surgical time for intramedullary nailing than ORIF. There's less blood loss for intramedullary nailing than ORIF. However, there are equal union rates, radial bow, and rotation as ORIF. Finally, moving on to open reduction and internal fixation. As far as the approach, this is often a combination of a volar approach and an ulnar approach centered over the fracture. In terms of soft tissues, minimize soft tissue damage and avoid excessive periosteal stripping. In terms of bone work, simple patterns can be rigidly stabilized after anatomic reduction. Comminuted patterns or bone loss requires relative stability over the fracture sites. Complications can include rotational malalignment, nonunion, and malunion. Now, let's end this review session talking about some overall complications of pediatric both bone forearm fractures. The ones to know include refracture, malunion, compartment syndrome, and synastosis. Refracture occurs in 5 to 10% following both bone fractures. Plate removal and green stick patterns are risk factors for refracture. Treatment consists of open reduction and internal fixation. In terms of malunion, the incidence of symptomatic malunion is seen as the loss of pronation and supination. This may be related to initial reduction or delay in diagnosis. If symptomatic, treatment consists of corrective osteotomies. Moving on to compartment syndrome, Risk factors include high-energy trauma or multiple attempts at reduction and rod passage. If there is unsuccessful nail passage after two to three attempts, open the fracture site to visualize rod passage. Treatment of compartment syndrome consists of forearm fasciotomies. Finally, moving on to synostosis, this is a rare complication but occurs following head injury and high-energy trauma. Keep in mind that resection rarely leads to an improved range of motion. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic might be tested. First question. A five-year-old female patient sustains a pediatric distal both bone forearm fracture with dorsal displacement and shortening. You perform closed reduction and casting. You measure your post-reduction cast index at 0.95. What is the patient at risk for? And the choices are one, increased pain in the affected extremity, 2. Growth arrest of the distal radius and ulnar physis. 3. Non-union of the fracture. 4. Loss of reduction of the fracture. And 5. Increased swelling of the affected extremity. The correct answer to this question is 4. Loss of reduction of the fracture. So a cast index greater than 0.8 is a risk factor for loss of reduction of a fracture after casting. To quickly review, pediatric both bone forearm fractures can often be treated non-operatively in a cast. However, there is a risk for displacement. An easy-to-calculate radiographic measurement to evaluate cast molding is the cast index. 
It is calculated by measuring the inner diameter of a cast on a lateral x-ray and divide that by the measured inner diameter of a cast on the AP x-ray. This measurement has been shown to be a risk factor for redisplacement of a fracture after reduction and casting when calculated to be greater than 0.8. McQuinn and Jarsma assessed risk factors for redisplacement of pediatric both bone forearm fractures after close reduction and casting. They found that the degree of initial displacement and quality of reduction were significant factors in the risk for redisplacement. When patients had greater than 50% displacement, meaning less than 50% bony apposition of the fracture, or had less than an anatomic reduction based upon objective radiographic measurements, there was an increased risk of redisplacement. Cast index was also evaluated, and they found casts with values greater than 0.8 were significantly more likely to redisplace than those less than 0.8. They conclude that the CAST index is a simple measure that should be used in clinical practice. Kamat et al. evaluated 1,001 pediatric patients with both bone forearm fractures treated with plaster casting. They found an overall 10.6% redisplacement rate. In patients with CAST indices of less than or equal to 0.8, they found a rate of 5.58%, while those with CAST indices of greater than 0.81 redisplaced in 26% of patients with a p-value of 0.0001. They conclude by stating the CAST index is a simple radiographic measurement and should be the gold standard in the evaluation of proper plaster cast molding. And moving on to the final question, a 12-year-old boy fell sustaining a both bone forearm fracture. Which of the following is true regarding the radiographic assessment of anatomic forearm alignment after reduction? And the choices are one, the ulnar styloid and coronoid process are best seen on the AP radiograph. Two, on the lateral radiograph, the radial styloid and biceps tuberosity are oriented 90 degrees apart. Three, on the AP radiograph, the ulnar styloid and coronoid process are oriented 180 degrees apart. Four, on the AP radiograph, the radial styloid and biceps tuberosity are oriented 180 degrees apart. And five, on the AP radiograph, the radial styloid and biceps tuberosity are oriented 90 degrees apart. The correct answer to this question is 4. On the AP radiograph, the radial styloid and biceps tuberosity are oriented 180 degrees apart. So when a forearm fracture is properly reduced, the AP radiograph demonstrates the radial styloid and biceps tuberosity are 180 degrees apart. On the lateral, the coronoid process and ulnar styloid will be 180 degrees apart. Noonan et al. reviewed pediatric forearm and distal radius fractures in children. They concluded that in children less than 9 years of age, complete displacement, 15 degrees of angulation, and 45 degrees of malrotation are acceptable. In children 9 years of age or older, 30 degrees of malrotation is acceptable, with 10 degrees of angulation for proximal fractures and 15 degrees for more distal fractures. Complete bayonet apposition is acceptable, especially for distal radius fractures, as long as angulation does not exceed 20 degrees and 2 years of growth remains. For patients with less than 2 years of growth remaining, surgical indications and tolerances are the same as for adults. Dumont et al. studied the effect of malrotation of the radius and or ulna on supination and pronation in cadaver forearms. They determined that malrotation of the radius in supination led to the largest decrease in rotation due to a single bone, while a combined rotational malunion of the radius and ulna in opposite directions led to the largest limitation of the range of motion. They determined that rotational malunion may be isolated or part of a complex angular-slash-rotational deformity with rotational malunion leading to increased impairment. That's all for this review about pediatric both bone forearm fracture. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets. 
the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. Keep in mind that these podcasts are designed to go along with the topics on orthobullets.com, and in fact, you can listen to these episodes right on the OrthoBullets website or mobile app while going through the topic. If you've gotten any value from the OrthoBullets podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Also, if you aren't already, be sure to follow OrthoBullets on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube for daily high-yield content. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you all tomorrow right here on the OrthoBullets podcast.